Chapter Sixteen of Delorme by G. P. R. James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Sixteen. I slept soundly and I rose refreshed, although my hands were very stiff and my head was not without its pains from the rude treatment that each had undergone. No one in the house was up when I woke, and saddling my own horse as well as I could, I left word with the old gardener that I should return before the hour of breakfast, and set out for Lourdes. If I was not always very considerate in forming my resolutions, as the wise axiom recommends, I was certainly not slow in executing them, and I now proceeded at full speed to fulfil my determination of the night before in regard to the chevalier. Stopping at Arnaud's house, I threw myself off my horse, entered his étude, which appeared to be just opened, nor did the least doubt enter my mind that the person I sought was still there. The first thing, however, that I perceived was the enormous head of the old procureur himself, looking through the sort of barred screen that surrounded his writing-table, like some strange beast in a menagerie. I was not very much inclined to treat this incubus of the law with any great civility on my own account, as I was aware that, for some reason to himself best known, he bore me no extraordinary love. But as Helen's father, he commanded other feelings, and I therefore addressed him as politely as I could. In answer to my inquiries for the chevalier, he bowed most profoundly, replying that the Monsieur de Montenero would be quite in despair when he found that I had come to honour him with a visit only five minutes after his departure. "'What, is he gone already?' cried I. "'When did he go? Where did he go to?' "'He is indeed, I am sorry to say, gone, Monsieur le Comte,' replied the procureur, "'and in answer to your second interrogatory I can reply that he has been gone precisely nine minutes and three quarters, but in regard to the third question, all I can depone is that I do not at all know, only that he spoke of being absent some three months or more. Angry, vexed, and disappointed, I turned unceremoniously on my heel, and as I went out I heard a sort of suppressed laugh issued through the wide, unmoved jaws of the procureur, whose imperturbable countenance announced nothing in the least like mirth. And yet I am certain that he was at that moment laughing most heartily at the deceit he had put upon me, for, as I afterwards learned, the chevalier was in his house at the very time. The distance between Lourdes and the chateau was narrowed speedily, and on my arrival I found the domestic microcosm I had left behind, sound asleep an hour before, now just beginning to buzz. My father had not yet quitted his own room, but the servants were all bustling about in the preparations of the morning, and as I rode up, old Ussay himself, recovered from his drunkenness, sneaked into the court like a beaten dog. Not that he was at all ashamed of having been drunk, it was part of his profession, but upon the road he had heard my adventures of the night before detailed in very glowing language, and he justly feared that the indignation of the whole household would fall upon his head for having been absent in the moment of danger. Beckoning him to speak to me, I gave him a hint that I had been tender of his name, and that, if he chose to keep his own counsel, he might yet pass scatheless from the rest of the family. "'I shall punish you myself, Metrousse,' continued I, "'for I will teach you to get drunk at proper times and seasons only.' 
as i hope to live answered the trumpeter i did but drink two cups and you well know monsieur that two cups of wine to me or the maitre d'hôtel who have drunk so many hundred tons in our lives is but as a cup of cold water to another man they must have drugged those two cups for a certainty they must have been drugged at breakfast i found helen with my father they were alone for my mother was ill from the agitation of the night before and had remained in her own chamber desiring not to be disturbed the moment my step sounded in the vestibule helen's eyes darted towards the door and i could see the flush of eagerness on her cheek and the paleness that then overspread it as she saw my head bound up and then again the blood mounting quickly lest any one should see the busy feelings of her swelling heart it was a mute language which i could read as easily as my own thoughts but still i would have given worlds to have been permitted to hear and speak to her with the openness of acknowledged love the breakfast passed over helen left the hall and after a few minutes conversation my father went to the library while i gazed for a moment from the window meditating over a thousand hopes in all of which helen had her part letting thought wander gaily through a thousand mazy turns like a child sporting in a meadow without other object than delight roaming heedlessly here and there and gathering fresh flowers at every step as i gazed i saw the figure of helen glide from the door of the square tower and take her way towards the park now now then was the opportunity she had promised not to avoid me any longer now then was the moment for which my heart had longed more than language can express and snatching a gun to excuse the wanderings which indeed needed no excuse i was hastening to pour forth the multitude of accumulated feelings and thoughts and dreams and wishes which had gathered in my bosom during so many months of silence when i was called to speak with my father just as my foot was on the step of the door i will own that if ever i felt undutiful it was then however i could not avoid going and certainly with a very unwilling heart i mounted the stairs and entered the library my father had a letter in his hand which i soon found came from the countess de soissons and contained a reply favourable to my mother's request that i might be placed near the person of the prince her son so well known under the name of monsieur le comte my father placed it in my hands and seemed to expect that i should be very much gratified at the news but i could only reply as i had done before that i had not the least inclination to quit my paternal home without indeed it was for the purpose of serving for a campaign or two in the armies of my country well louis replied my father thinking me doubtless a wayward and whimsical boy if you will look at the proscriptum you will perceive that you are likely to be gratified in that point at least for the countess states that his highness her son though at present at sedan from some little rupture with the court is likely to receive the command of one of the armies however take the letter consider its contents and at dinner let me know when you will be prepared to set out glad to escape so soon i flew out into the park in search of my beautiful helen it was now a fine day in the beginning of may as warm as summer as bright as lovely nature was in her very freshest robe of green the air was full of sweetness and balm and as i went a lark rose up before my steps 
and mounting high in the sunshine hung a far speck upon its quivering wings making the whole air thrill with its melodious happiness i love the lark above all other birds though there is something more tender and plaintive in the liquid music of the nightingale yet there seems a touch of repining in its solitude and its gloom but the lark images always to my mind a happy and contented spirit who full of love and delight soars up towards the beneficent heaven and sings its song of joy and gratitude in presence of all the listening creation all objects in external nature have a very great effect upon my mind whether i will or not they are received by my imagination as omens and catching the lark's song as a happy augury i sped on upon my way as much had been done as possible to render the park which extended behind the chateau regular and symmetrical but the ground was so uneven in its nature so broken with rocks and hills and streams and dells that it retained much more of the symmetry of nature than anything else which after all to my taste is more beautiful than aught man can devise if helen had wandered very far from the house it would have been a difficult matter to have found her but a sort of instinct guided me to where she was i thought of the spot i believe which i myself would have chosen for lonely musing a spot where a bower of high trees arched over a little cascade of about ten feet in height whose waters after escaping from the clear pool into which they fell rushed quickly down the slanting ravine before them nourishing the roots of innumerable shrubs and trees and flowers and spreading a soft murmur and a cool freshness wherever they turned helen was sitting on the bank over which the stream fell and though she held in her hand some piece of female work which while my mother slept she had brought out to occupy herself in the park yet her eyes were fixed upon the rushing waters of the fall at that moment catching a stray sunbeam that found its way through the trees the cascade had decorated itself with a fluttering iris which varied with a thousand hues waved over the cataract like those changeful hopes of life which hanging bright and beautiful over all the precipices of human existence still waver and change to suit every wind that blows along the course of time my footstep was upon the greensward so that helen heard it not and she continued to sit with her full dark eyes fixed upon the waterfall her soft downy cheek resting upon the slender graceful hand which might have formed a model for the statuary or the painter and her whole figure leaning forward with that untaught elegance of form and position which never but once did painter or statuary succeed in representing when she did hear me she looked up but there was no longer the quick start to avoid me as if she feared a moment's unobserved conversation her cheek it is true turned a shade redder and i could see that she was somewhat agitated but still those dear tender eyes turned upon me and a smile that owned she was happy in my presence broke from her heart itself and found its way to her lips dear dear helen said i seating myself beside her thank you for the promise that you would not avoid me and thank you for its fulfilment and thank you for that look and thank you for that smile oh helen you know not how like a monarch you are in having the power by a word or a glance or a tone to confer happiness and to raise from misery and doubt to hope and life and delight 
"'Indeed, Louis,' answered she, in a very different manner from that which I had ever seen in her before, "'if I do possess such power, I am not sorry that it is so, for I am sure that while it remains with me to make you happy, you shall never be otherwise. You think it very strange,' she added with a smile, "'to hear me talk as I do now, and I would never, never have done so had not circumstances changed. But they have changed, Louis, and as I now see some hope of—' She paused a moment, as if seeking means to express herself, and I saw a bright, ingenuous blush spread over her whole countenance. "'Why should I hesitate to say it?' she added. "'As I see some hope now of becoming your wife, without entering into a family unwilling to receive me, I know not why I should not tell you also this has made me so happy.' "'A thousand and a thousand thanks, dearest Helen,' answered I. "'But tell me on what circumstance you, who once doubted my parents' consent so much more than I ever did, now found expectations so joyful.' let me say for us both you must not ask me louis answered helen the only reason that could at all have influenced me to withhold from you what i hoped what i was sure would make you happy was that i felt myself bound to be silent on more than one subject you cannot fancy how i dislike anything that seems to imply mystery and want of confidence between two people that love one another and indeed it is the greatest happiness i anticipate in being yours that then i shall have neither thought nor feeling nor action that you may not know but in the present case you must spare me do not ask me louis if you love me of course however much my curiosity might be excited i put no farther question merely asking as calmly as i could fearful lest i should instil some new doubts in helen's mind if she was sure, very sure, that the joyful news she gave me was perfectly certain, for I owned that it took such a burden from my heart, I could scarce believe my own hopes. All I can say, Louis, answered she, is that I feel sure neither your father nor your mother will object to our union, when the time arrives to think that it may take place. Of course, we are yet far too young. Too young? said I. "'Why too young, dear Helen?' "'No, oh, for many reasons,' she answered, smiling. "'You have yet to mingle with the world. "'At least so I have heard people who know the world "'say that it is necessary for a young man to do "'before he dreams of marriage. "'You have yet to see all the fair and the young and the gay "'which that world contains "'before you can rightly judge whether your poor Helen "'may still possess your heart.' "'And do you doubt me?' demanded i helen you have promised me never to give your hand to another and without one doubt or one hesitation do i promise the same to you by yourself by my hopes of happiness in this world or the next by all that i hold sacred hush hush dear louis replied she do not swear so deeply there are many many temptations i have heard in the great world which are difficult for a young man to resist louis have you not found it so already there was a peculiar emphasis in her question which surprised and hurt me but in a moment it flashed through my mind the chevalier had communicated his suspicions of me to arnault and arnault had taken care to impart them to his daughter i stood for a moment as one stupefied then taking her hands in mine i asked 
Helen, what is it that you mean? Can you, do you in the least believe me guilty? No, Louis, no, dear Louis, answered she, with a look of full, undoubting, unhesitating confidence. If all the world were to declare you guilty, mine should be the dissenting voice, and I would never, never believe it. I will not deny that tales have reached me, which I do not dwell on, because I am sure they are false, basely and generously false, or originating in some mistake which you can correct when you will, and will correct when you ought. Do not explain them to me. Do not waste a word or a thought upon them, as far as I am concerned, she added, seeing me about to speak, for I believe not a word of them, not one single word. Oh, woman's love, it is like the sunshine, so pure, so bright, so cheering, and there is nothing in all creation equal to it. I threw my arms round her unopposed, I pressed my lips upon hers, but the kiss that I then took was as pure as gratitude, for such generous affection could suggest. I say not that it was brotherly, for it was dearer, sweeter. But if there be a man on earth who says there was one unholy feeling mingled therein, I tell him, in his throat, he lies. At that moment the figure of a man broke at once through the boughs upon us. Helen turned, and, confused and ashamed at anyone having seen her so clasped in my arms, fled instinctively like lightning, while the intruder advanced upon me in a menacing attitude. It was Jean-Baptiste Arnaud, and with a flushed cheek and a raised stick he came quickly upon me, exclaiming, "'Villain! You have seduced my sister, and, by the God above, your nobility shall not protect you!' "'Hear me, Arnaud!' cried I, but he still advanced with the stick lifted in an attitude to strike. My blood took fire. "'Hear me!' repeated I, snatching up my carbine. "'Hear me, or take the consequences!' and I retreated up the hill, with the gun pointed towards his breast. Mad, I believe, for his conduct can hardly be attributed to anything but frenzy. He rushed on upon me, without giving time for any explanation, and struck a violent blow at my head with his stick. I started back to avoid it. My foot struck against an angle of the rock. I stumbled. The gun went off, and Arnaud, after reeling for a moment with an ineffectual effort to stand, pressed his hand upon his bosom, and fell lifeless at my feet. End of chapter 16